greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. At what point are spoilers downgraded from secrets to common knowledge? Surely, at this point, it is not a faux pas for me to casually declare whose head was in the box, who Verbal Kind really is, and who Tyler Durden isn't. None of those films were released this millennium, so surely I'm not spoiling anything. Rather, some people just simply aren't keeping up with popular culture. Which means that sometimes you don't have to have seen the films at all, because the spoilers are so big, they break beyond the borders of the screen and percolate into popular culture. Like the shower scene, the horse's head in the bed, and the bunny boiling gently on the stove. Again, none of them this century. Which also means, in order for the spoiler to enter into popular culture, a sufficient length of time has to pass. But conversely, there comes a time when so much time has passed that the pendulum swings back on a generation whose cultural reference points no longer remember Jack Forrester, Lieutenant Commander Tom Farrell and Bridget Gregory. See what I mean? Mr. Fabrizio, what kind of knife did you see? Hunting knife, about uh, six inches long with a jag on the edge. How'd you know it was Forrester's locker? Well, because it was numbered 122, and that's his number. Commander, by what right do you have Call to Call out the search now. Great, thank you. You're not looking for a Russian spy. You're looking for somebody who knows Susan Atwell was your mistress. What are you talking about? You gave her a gold box that a Moroccan foreign minister gave to you. I want you to go back with me. Oh, really, you do? And all I have to do is kill someone while you go apartment hunting? We can do it together. Wendy, maybe it's my quaint, small-town morals that I don't do murder. Yeah, well, you would if you loved me. All of which makes me wonder whether discussing the details of a plot from a film released 97 years ago is to deliver some serious spoilers. But then again, perhaps my merely citing a spoiler is spoiler enough. Released in 1920, The Cabinet of Dr Caligari is the great-granddaddy of all spoiler movies, delivering such a stunning sting in its tale that cinema has never been the same since. The way Caligari finishes out it compels you to completely reevaluate everything that you've just seen. But I won't be talking about the twist, and instead I will talk about its structure. It's told in flashback, with the central character Francis sitting on a bench explaining to an older man how he came to lose his fiancée, Jane. The film then slips into flashback, where we see Francis happily engaged to his sweetheart, for the mysterious Dr Caligari arrives into their small town of Holstenval. Caligari has with him his fairground attraction, the somnambulist Cesare, and the remainder of the story is told in flashback right up until the shock ending. Certainly, this was not the first film to deploy the flashback device. The earliest known surviving film that does dates from 1901, Histoire d'une crime, by Ferdinand Zecca, which means that by the time Caligari was released, audiences were very familiar with the structural device. But such a device only works if the audience believes that the flashback is true. In other words, they have faith in the narrator telling the story. The Cabinet of Dr Caligari was the first movie to use the narrator in order to pull the rug from under our feet. While literature had been using the unreliable narrator as far back as Aristophanes in the 4th century BC, we've got to remember when Caligari was made cinema was but a quarter of a century old, and so filmmakers were still figuring out the medium's grammatical and narrative boundaries. And so, with its familiar structure, but audacious ending, 
Caligari paved the way for the likes of Citizen Kane, Rashomon, and Memento, where the narrator or narrators have ulterior motives in telling us their story. But even where the film does not have a narrator, in say Don't Look Now, The Crying Game and Shutter Island, they do have directors. And so in those cases, it's not unreliable narrators, but misdirection that tricks the audience. There, directors behave like magicians, convincing us that what we are seeing is true, yet all the while, they are really only distracting us from what is actually going on. The Innocence, Angel Heart and Minority Report are all exercises in misdirection. The children never mention him. Oh no, miss. And neither must you. Not to them. You see, miss, it was Master Miles that found him. Oh, that poor little boy. If you could have heard his screams. Did you kill him? No, I didn't kill him. But the cops might think I did. Mm. Hey, look, I took on a $125 a day missing persons job with you, all right? Now I'm a murder suspect. That's it. I'm out. Who's Ann Lively? Who? Ann Lively. John was talking about her right before they took him. I don't know who that is. John said something about him being set up because he found out about her. Although financed and distributed by a German company, Dekla, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was actually directed by a Hungarian filmmaker, Robert Wiener. Furthermore, the screenplay was written by a Czech, Hans Janowitz, and an Austrian, Karl Meyer. Janowitz had enlisted in the German army before World War I, but was so shattered by the death of his brother that he returned from the war an avowed pacifist. It was then that he met Karl Meyer, who had spent his teenage years living by his wits on the streets of grass after his father had gambled away his stockbroking business before committing suicide. The respective traumas united Janowitz and Meyer in their deep scepticism with authority, and that distrust expressed itself in their story in which no one is to be trusted, neither the doctor in charge of the psychiatric hospital nor even the story's narrator. But more than that, Janowitz and Meyer were expressing a mood of utter disillusionment, if not complete horror, with the post-war world. Not only had Germany been defeated in the war, in very quick succession the Kaiser had resigned, gone into exile and Germany was no longer a monarchy. The fledgling democracy was instantly threatened with anarchy from political factions from both the extreme left and right. Faced with a crippling reparation bill at the Treaty of Versailles, Germany's socialists, anarchists, royalists and democrats were all in conflict, with many wealthy industrialists demanding a return to an autocratic monarchy, while many in the unions wanted a communist revolution. In other words, the cabinet of Dr Caligari was meant to reflect post-war Germany. Which surely begs the question, why didn't the filmmakers just make a straightforward drama about soldiers returning from the front, instead of running the risk of being obtuse? The answer brings us to the second reason why Caligari is such a landmark. It is cinema's first arthouse picture. Until its release, cinema's tradition had been realism. Yes, of course, Georges Méliès had specialised in fantasy, but even within that realm, everything on the screen was representative of itself. Caligari broke that tradition so profoundly that again, cinema has never been the same since. Caligari was the very first film that found a way of conveying its plot, ideas, themes and mood in a way that was not literal. Instead, it was expressionist. 
For one thing, the film was shot not outdoors on location in a real world, but rather indoors in a studio where everything is distorted and the distortion draws attention to itself. The sets are skewed, everything is off kilter and the walls, rooms, windows, streets and buildings are all at a slant. More than any other film before it, Caligari showed how form could express content. How a piece of clothing, the set design, lighting and camera angle could be used to express a character's emotional state and, by extension, the film's theme. While watching Caligari, we may not necessarily understand the reasoning behind things being so unbalanced. But the lack of straight lines is used to indicate a nightmarish world, and it is only at the end do we realise just why that vision is so distorted. So Caligari showed how filmmakers could use locations, sets, costumes, and even story structure to suggest the theme and mood. Which is a third reason Caligari is one of the most groundbreaking films ever made. Right up there alongside Battleship Potemkin, Citizen Kane, Rashomon and Breathless. More than any other film before it, Caligari showed how you could design a film so that its look, not its words, expressed its content. Which means Caligari ushered in the German Expressionist film movement. Which in turn means that it was also the forerunner of the American idiom film noir, which would take in anything and everything from Double Indemnity and Mildred Pierce, right along to The Night of the Hunter and Touch of Evil. But I wish to look elsewhere to find perhaps Caligari's less expected but equally valid legacy. Without Caligari's example, you would not have the recurring imagery of prison bars in Casablanca nor the phantasmagorical shadows in the lanes and sewers of the third man. The ice palace expressive of a frozen hope in Dr. Zhivago. The strict geometry to convey power in all the president's men. The use of slow motion in Taxi Driver to put us inside Travis Bickle's head. The terrifying sexual imagery in Alien. The maze in The Shining being symbolic of Jack Torrance's insanity. The use of a basilica and a piece of rope to convey spiritual rebirth in the English patient. The colour red in the sixth sense. Or the various connotations of water in atonement. But they are just pictures. Since 1927 there has also been sound design, with Alfred Hitchcock grasping its expressive qualities in his very first sound picture, Blackmail. Now mind you, a knife is a difficult thing to handle. I mean, any knife. I mean, if you use a pen knife, a knife, a knife. Alice, cut us a bit of bread, will you? A knife. What's that other knife? A knife. A knife. A knife. A knife. A knife. A knife. I mean, in Chelsea, you mustn't use a knife! Today, we have these sounds. And beyond them, we have, of course, this sound. It helps create terrific atmosphere. 
Without atmosphere, you've got nothing. If a horror film fails to generate tension and fear, all the time and effort spent on creating the monster and special effects count for naught. While the Oxford English Dictionary defines horror as an intense feeling of fear, shock or disgust, etymologists tell us that the origin of the word is to be found in the Latin horere, meaning to shudder, of hair stand on end. And what makes our hair stand on end? Something that cannot be easily explained, something that unsettles, something that continues to linger in the back of our minds long after the moment has passed. Obviously, Caligari has had a lasting cinematic impact, but what of its emotional impact? I think it is this, abandonment. Being abandoned is a recurring theme of horror. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And since the 20th century, the sense of being alone has become particularly acute. From Franz Kafka's Metamorphoses to George Orwell's 1984, which was originally called The Last Man in Europe, to Don Ziegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, the Saw series created by James Wan and Lee Whannell, and right now, Bruce Miller's petrifying adaptation of Margaret Atwood's chilling dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. My name is Alfred. I had another name, but it's forbidden now. So many things are forbidden now. The horror comes from the sense that a nightmare is happening before your very eyes, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari shows that everyone seems to be in on the conspiracy, and you are all alone. <laughs>